Well, good morning. Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving with your families this past Thursday. Um, and, and if you were with us last week, you know that we closed out uh, Mark's gospel account after spending uh, most of the year going through it. I uh, hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, and, and if you remember, it, it ended with the women coming and finding the empty tomb. And there's the angel sitting there who said, He is not here, for he is risen. He has gone before you to meet you in Galilee. Go and tell the others. And that is the great news of the resurrection, that Jesus has, has come and he's overcome. And from here, from that great story of the gospel, uh, we're, we're jumping now to the season of Advent. And, and this morning is actually the first Sunday in Advent, if you can believe it. It's almost December in a couple of days. It, the year has been weird, but it's kind of flown by. Uh, so Advent is simply a Latin word that means coming or arrival of a notable person, a thing, or event. To us, it is the coming of the Lord, and we celebrate that He has come, and we prepare our hearts for His coming again. There's another word used for this in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, and it's used by the early church as well. In 1 Corinthians 16, we read in his final greetings and, and farewell to the Corinthian church, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. And that phrase, our Lord, come, is an, Arama is an Aramaic phrase, Maranatha. So it consists of a couple words. The, the original Aramaic word, mar, or mer, means Lord. Adding uh, the Aramaic na uh, makes it our Lord. And then the uh, is an Aramaic verb related to the action of coming. So, so depending on, on how you use the words and, and where you put the emphasis, it can mean slightly different things, actually. Uh, it can mean three variations of come, Lord, as in a prayerful request, or the Lord has come as a declaration, or the Lord is coming as a promise. So all three are consistent with New Testament theology, and all three are great truths. So it's, it's a wonderful phrase that we can use. Maranatha can be found in also one of the earliest Christian teachings. Uh, in the first century, there's a Greek text known as the, as the Didache. It's the teachings of the Lord through the twelve apostles to the nations. Uh, so this multi-chapter book covers the life um, of, the, of the early church, um, how to live, how to pray, how to baptize, how to celebrate communion, um, and also talks about the second coming. And, and Maranatha appears at the end of it as part of uh, this, this final uh, farewell, this, this, this praise after receiving communion and, and a final farewell. It reads, Let grace come and this world pass away. Hosanna to David's God, if anyone be holy, come. If anyone not be holy, repent. Maranatha. Amen. So, come Lord Jesus. Amen. So we see how this phrase, Maranatha, addresses the reality of Jesus as Lord and as both present and coming. That is Advent. The season when we look to the coming of the Lord in Bethlehem. Right? It happened. It happened. And, and, then, and then we look to the coming of the Lord at the end of time. It will happen. And then we look at it coming, Jesus coming into our own lives as believers. So it is happening. 
So this is how the early church would greet one another, actually, saying, Maranatha. And, and as we see with Paul, use it as a, as a shared hope in a farewell exclamation to one another, come Lord Jesus. So the Jews we know would use shalom as, as a greeting, saying, peace be with you. Uh, and the Christians transitioned from this to Maranatha because there's no other phrase that summarizes the whole of Scripture and our hope better than this one. The Lord Jesus has come. He has come. And he is coming again. There's also an allusion to Maranatha at the very end of the Bible, actually. Uh, It's the second to last verse in the book of Revelation. We read that John the Apostle writes, he says, He who testifies to these things, and John has this vision, an angel comes to him and shows him these things, so he says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And, and that's in red letters. As Jesus saying, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. And then John writes, come Lord Jesus. And there it is. It's in Greek. It's not, it's not the Aramaic Maranatha, but the cry is the same. Come Lord Jesus. So again, Maranatha means Jesus has come. He is coming and he's, he's present with us. He is come. And the same can be said, actually, of the kingdom of God. So it it has come with Jesus. The kingdom has come. It has been inaugurated, and yet there is still a future consummation when Jesus will will come again and, and, and bring it to its completion. And yet, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is present. We are bearers of it, belonging to it, and experience it in a way that is a foretaste and a foreshadow of what is to come when it comes in full. But it all revolves around Jesus, the central figure of history and time and creation, the central figure of the prophetic and what is to come is Jesus. Bottom line, Maranatha is a return to the ancient fire of the central, simple message of the ages, the promised one. He is everything, and his coming is the only thing that truly matters. This is to be the dominating vision of our lives as believers. We are to have a a fiery obsession with the man who is coming, Maranatha. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1, 17-20. He is our hope, our love, our maker, our sustainer, every good and perfect thing is found in him, which is why biblical prophecy provides the greatest encouragement and hope to us today. Just as the Old Testament is saturated with prophecies concerning Christ's first coming, both testaments are filled and saturated with references to the second coming of Christ. One scholar has estimated that there are 1,845 references to Christ's second coming in the Old Testament. 17 books give it prominence. In the 260 chapters 
of the New Testament, there are 318 references to the second coming of Christ. This means one out of every 30 verses. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to this great event. And to put it in perspective, for every prophecy in the Bible concerning Christ's first coming, there are eight prophecies which look forward to his second coming. His return is the hope of the ages. From the very beginning of the fall, there was a future hope of God restoring us as sons and daughters in his new and eternal kingdom. The new garden, which will be a great city, which will be filled with with people from across time. So we'll, we'll look more at the second coming next week. But with this in mind, we can see the heart cry of Maranatha is for Jesus to return, to make all things new. That's our ultimate hope. For in this world, as it currently is, we will have trouble. But Jesus says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. So, so hopelessness has been conquered. For our unshakable hope is in the return of Christ. Meaning that, meaning that no matter what happens here and now, how good or bad our lives are, the Maranatha cry is the cry of Paul when he says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. That is the Maranatha worldview. Come, Lord Jesus. I love you and long for you more than anything else this world can offer me. I think John the Baptist embodied the Maranatha cry of our heart quite well, you know, when he was preparing the way for the Lord, saying, make paths straight. He's coming. Repent. Get ready. Take heart. Believe the good news. Don't be afraid. Be anxious for nothing. For he has come, and he is coming again to make all things new. We don't, we don't see John the Baptist in palaces wearing silk clothes. The only palace he was in is while he was in prison, before he was beheaded. And remember, King Herod mourned John's death, even though he had him beheaded, because John's message was pure, and it was incorrupted by money or influence. John says, look to the coming one, the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. One is coming so much greater than I. And Jesus came, and he overcame in accordance to and fulfillment of Scripture, perfectly fulfilling it. And so, and, and so we trust, because of that, we, we trust and we know that likewise he will come again in accordance to and in fulfillment of the hundreds and hundreds of prophecies of his second coming. That's why Jesus, you know, throughout his ministry, we, we see that he was so committed to the Scriptures, so committed, showing us that we too should trust in them and, and walk in accordance to them. And, and even where we fall short of them, we know that Jesus will not, for he has overcome and he will come again, just as he said he would, for he is true to his word. The early church took great comfort in this. And they, from the very beginning, faced immense persecution, especially because the Romans required everyone to declare that Caesar was God. 
The early Christians knew and proclaimed that there is only one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And in good conscience, they could not call Caesar Lord. So the Romans looked upon them as as traitors, and, and they persecuted them and put them to death. And this still happens today. Worst case is is in North Korea. But many, many countries persecute Christians because our loyalty is to God above all else. It's not to a party. It's not to a person. We don't look for saviors and politicians, for there's only one Savior, and He has come, and He is coming again. Maranatha. You see, our hope is not in this world. It's in the coming King. So we live for him here and now in hopeful expectation and courageous loyalty because the world rejects this. Jesus says, they rejected me. They're going to reject you too if you indeed follow me. So life for a committed Christian under Roman rule was not easy. You did not get good business connections by becoming a Christian. You did not earn respect in society at large by following Jesus. You did not get the dinner invites to prestigious houses. If you denied Caesar as Lord, it did not help your reputation in your local community. And hardest still, in your very own family. Which is why Jesus warns his disciples and says, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household, says Jesus. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So where is our hope? Where is our heart? Where is our love? It is in Jesus. My family can't save me. They can't even save themselves. Only Jesus can save all of us. Only Jesus laid his life down for us. So he's calling the courageous. He's calling the humble. He's calling those who are so done with this world that they wholly surrender their lives to him, to the one who came and overcame, to the one who can truly give new life, who can bring us from death to life. And he gives this gift freely. He laid his life down freely, but we must leave everything at the door when we come and follow him, so that we can say with our whole being, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. I'm done. This world is broken. We need you to come. I've lost my life in this present world to find it, Jesus, in your coming kingdom. So then come Lord Jesus. It's a radical denial of self and this world and its systems and it's finding one's true identity, one's true hope in Jesus. Maranatha. But there is a pervasive and pernicious American theology that threatens the true gospel and the Maranatha cry. And actually, I think Kenny Chesney captures it quite perfectly in his song, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven. And this song was released in 2008. I'm sure you've heard it. It's been on the top of the charts. It's catchy. They play it a lot. They still do on the radio. And and sorry if you love this song. Sorry, not sorry, if you love it. Um, I'm going to point out it's false theology and, uh, because that's what it is. He, he, he's showing the, the false American theology that seems to be pervasive amongst cultural Christianity. 
This is how the song goes. He says, preacher told me last Sunday morning, son, you better start living right. You need to quit the women and whiskey and carrying on all night. Don't you want to hear him call your name when you're standing at the pearly gates? I told the preacher, yes, I do. But I hope they don't call today. I ain't ready. Then he goes into the course. He says, everybody wants to go to heaven, have a mansion high above the clouds. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody want to go now. And this is supposed to be kind of funny, right? But this, this song is capturing a worldview and a theology that is present in America. He, he goes on, he says, I said, preacher, maybe you didn't see me throw an extra 20 in the plate. There's one for everything I did last night and one to get me through today. Here's a 10 to help you remember. Next time you got the good Lord's ear, say, I'm coming, but there ain't no hurry. I'm having fun down here. Don't you know that Everybody wants to go to heaven, get their wings and fly around. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. Someday, I want to see those streets of gold in my halo, but I wouldn't mind waiting at least a hundred years or so. Everybody want to go to heaven. It beats the other place. There ain't no doubt. Everybody want to go to heaven, but nobody want to go now. Everybody want to go to heaven. Hallelujah. Let me hear you shout. Everybody want to go to heaven, but nobody want to go now. I think I speak for the crowd. Unfortunately, I think Kenny does speak for the crowd. This is how a lot of nominal Christians or cultural American Christians think of life. Right? Let me be clear, this is not Christianity. This, this is not the Christian worldview. Being in love with this world means the love of the Father is not in you. This is why the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so there's so much wrong with, with this song. We barely have time to scratch the surface. But, but this is the American gospel with the mentality that we can live however we want now. Do as we want. It's all about me and what makes me feel good in the moment. After all, God is loving and forgiving, right? So, so our, our faith is our ticket into heaven, and we kind of live however we want, do what we want now. And life here is more fun than it will be in heaven. In essence, we're saying, I don't really long for Jesus. I long more for stuff. I long more for experiences. You guys, nothing in this life, nothing in this world even comes close to Jesus. Nothing can even hold a candle to him. For This world is passing away. We can hope in nothing else. The Maranatha cry is the anti-prosperity gospel cry. All right, all right, see, prosperity gospel says, God will give me everything I want here and now. Right? He, wants me to ha- he wants me to be happy. I-, I just have to think positively enough. I have to envision what I want and act like I already have it. Sow seeds you know, by-, by giving money, by doing good deeds that, that will bear fruit later in this life. And-, and I could speak into existence what I desire. Then the jobs, then the raises, then the, the prosperity comes my way. This is, this is what guys like Joel Osteen make a living off of, teaching in his best-selling book, Your Best Life Now. 
That's the kind of narcissistic theology that makes it all about us. That God is our great vending machine. So to push the right buttons, it will come out. Your best life isn't now. It is the one to come. Try telling a starving family in Yemen, hey, your best life is now. Just envision the food that, that you need in your belly. T- speak to the universe what you want. It's going to give it to you. Try, t- try telling an underground church in, uh, in Iran that's oppressed in silence for their faith. Your best life is now. What? Try telling the, the people in North Korea, your best life is now. Do you see how absurd this is? This world is broken, and we need Jesus And we need to stop drinking the the satanic Kool-Aid that's lulled the American church to sleep. Man, if we just had a little bit more, if I just had a little more money, I'd be happy. If if I could just do what I want, I'd finally be happy. No. We're called to live now in anticipation of and preparation for the life to come, bringing all things in our life in obedience to Christ. Christ. Not living for ourselves, but living as Paul says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is how and why the apostles couldn't be bought. They could not be bought by the allure of riches. This is how they could not be turned aside by the threat of death, even torturous death. See, we become cowards when we believe that this life is all there is. When we believe our best life is now or never, that makes us cowards. No, we're called to endurance. For in this life, we will have trouble. But Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's all about him and what he has done and what he will do. Our central hope is Christ. This is the bedrock of the global church. Take that away. What do we have left? We have nothing. This is everything. Maranatha, it's a return to the simplest and most ultimate reality of time and eternity. That he would have preeminence in all things. That's Maranatha. Maranatha is is an expression of community, relationships, and mission. Jesus has come. That that shapes our community. That's the foundation of the church, that he is the head and we are his bride, that he he is present. He has come. Our our relationship with him is is restored. We can draw near to God and he will draw near to us and that shapes our relationships. He's restored our relationship and he says he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. He says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise forgive, restore relationships. So we invite the peace and the grace and the forgiveness of Christ to be present in our relationships and our mission. Our mission is is to go and tell this great hope that he has come and he's coming again. It, It keeps us on mission and reminds us that this world, as John says, is passing away along with its desires. So stop being a slave to it and letting it drive you. Instead, draw near to God and develop a longing in your heart for Christ's rule and reign to come. See, Maranatha is is a radical message. It's a radical worldview. Longing for the coming of Christ. If we are so done with this world that's passing away. 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes, henceforth, there is laid up for me 
the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So, so in this Maranatha series, we want to develop hearts that love and long for the appearing of Christ. So I hope you're able to join us uh, throughout this series and, and, and be able to say with a deep conviction in your heart, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you all.